So God, we ask that you be present in this space. I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be worthy in your sight, O oh God. You are our rock and our redeemer, and we are thankful for you today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Morning, y'all. How's it going? I recently read an article that struck me about a man named Ben Stern. Ben's now 95 years old, but he was uh, still just a teenager when the Nazis invaded his small town outside Warsaw where he and his family lived. And swept up in the Nazi extremism and the nightmare that that was, Ben endured two different ghettos. He was in nine different concentration camps, including Auschwitz and Birkenau and Buchenwald. And Ben, shortly before he was liberated, he endured two death marches before the, uh, the U.S. Army showed up in the spring of 1945. And he was just a few months shy of his 24th birthday, and he only weighed 78 pounds, which is ridiculous to me. And after the war, Ben ended up up marrying another survivor that he met in a displaced person's camp uh, while they were still in Europe. And then in 1946, they came to America where they began to raise a family, and they began to thrive. And then his story gets complicated, right, if that wasn't enough. In 1959, they moved to a small town, uh, a suburb outside of Chicago called Skokie, Illinois. And uh, after World War II, this suburb was 60% Jewish. Um, And 18 years later, in 1977, a small but virulent faction of a neo-Nazi group in Chicago, um, which was known for um, infamous civil rights disputes, for clashes with the Chicago police, for their opposition to school integration, they decided that they were going to take their campaign to the suburbs. And so they wrote to about a dozen different Chicago suburbs for permits to parade and demonstrate down their streets. And one of those suburbs was Skokie. And most of the suburbs just ignored the letter, or they responded fairly lethargically. But for Skokie, they responded like a bull to a red flag, and understandably so. Because this was a community that was populated by a large number of concentration camp survivors. And the idea that black-shirted, would-be Nazis sporting swastikas were going to walk down their streets past their homes was too much for them to bear. Many hid from the prospect of it, didn't know what to do, but Ben Stern, he didn't. He stood up to organize an effort to prevent them from coming. Not again was he going to tolerate Nazis marching through his town, and not again was he going to allow the people who had hurt him and and been the hands of the most life-shattering experience he'd ever known to be in his neighborhood. The crazy thing is for him was that the First Amendment, the same law that protects protects all of us and our ability to speak and to speak freely, also protected these neo-Nazis and their desire to demonstrate in his town. And ultimately, Ben's efforts to bar them legally from coming to Skokie were thwarted, and so he had to figure out something else to do because he would not be stopped. He decided that just because the neo-Nazis could speak didn't mean that his town and his people couldn't respond because he remembered 1939. And he was not about to submit quietly or silently to a parade of swastikas walking down the streets where he lived again. And haunted by ghosts that I couldn't possibly imagine, and in the midst of his fear, Ben actually went and out and bought a gun despite his strong abhorrence for firearms. And, but what I love is that he did more than that. He could have stopped there. That could have been his response. But he decided that he was going to persuade the people of Skokie to not sit behind silence and hide behind their doors. And instead, he organized a massive counter-demonstration to confront the neo-Nazis if they came. 
And in some ways, I think it's this brilliant response. It was the perfect remedy for a country like ours that has strong First Amendment rights and for the people who have the courage to use those rights because it precisely contemplated what the First Amendment intended for us to do, that in order to respond to hateful speech didn't mean that the government needed to come in and silence people, but that it meant more people could speak and that their voice could be heard. And so Ben had the citizens of Skokie and their supporters ready to greet the neo-Nazis with this huge counter-demonstration. And in the end, the Nazis never came. Ben thwarted them. What's more is that afterwards, he took the gun that he had purchased, and he took a hammer, and he shattered it, and he spread those remnants along the route that they would have walked. I was struck by this story because within it stood a man that had faced so much, more than anyone would ever think was appropriate for someone to bear, and that was before he came to America. And out of all that he'd gone through, he'd built a life. He'd moved on. He'd, he'd begun to build something out of the ashes of everything that had happened to him and began to thrive beyond the terror that the Holocaust had put him through. And then years later, he's faced with another challenge that again seems unbearable. Men wearing the same symbols of those who had oppressed him wanted to spread the same message of hate that had brought the worst thing that he had ever experienced. But instead of quitting, instead of choosing to sit this one out and say, this is too much, I can't do it, instead of accepting it as something he couldn't do anything about, he stepped up and he led his community to resist. And the thing that I'm most curious about, like the moment I really want to be a fly on the wall in Ben's life, is the moment where he decided to face his fear and his anger and his anguish. The moment where he considered to do nothing, and then instead chose to lean into the opportunity he had to be a force for good. I want to see that moment because I think those are the kind of moments where character is forged. I think those are small moments that that lead to all of the big moments in our lives. And what's hard about those moments is usually they don't receive a lot of fanfare. You don't get a ticker tape parade for those moments. But I think that those are the moments that set up all the big things that come after. And they're pivotal moments that define us and who we choose to be. Our scripture today is one of those moments. We meet the prophet Jeremiah in a pretty low moment where he is questioning his call, his identity, and ultimately even who God is. And to be fair, Jeremiah lived during an age in which the people who said they were the people of God and who were serving them were mostly faithless preachers or prophets or priests. And while Jeremiah was still too young to have a driver's license, God calls out to him and says, are you going to be another faithless preacher or are you going to follow me? And it was a tough call to receive and Jeremiah had to be tough to respond to it. Because in a lot of ways, Jeremiah was like God's press secretary during one of the most down bear market times in the history of God's stock. It just was not a good season to be in that job. And during Jeremiah's life, the kingdom of Judah, this, you know, amazing kingdom for what it once was, was experiencing a rough season. Like, they went through more kings than the mariners have managers. It was a bad time for them. See, Josiah dies in 609 BC, and in the span of 23 years, four different kings take their turn on the throne. And it was one of the worst periods in their history. And in 586 BC, the kingdom was finally overrun by the Babylonians. And they destroyed the temple. They took Judah's leaders and their citizens into captivity. And throughout the years that led up to all of that, Jeremiah was God's chief spokesperson. 
And the leaders did not like the message that he was sent to, to give them. They felt mocked, they felt derided, they felt dishonored. And so when you feel that way and you're in power, what they chose to do was to do things to him like throw him in a well or put him in, put him in the stocks or put him in jail or other things. Jeremiah had an unenviable job. It was a job that God had given him and it was one that put him at odds with power, with his culture, and ultimately with his own family. And it was one that left him feeling like a stranger in a strange land. See, he was called to be God's prophet and to be God's prophet to God's people who he loved and to share a message that God had for them. But he was doing so in a culture and in an age that could have cared less. As many of us can imagine, it was a job that wore him down and made him question everything. And so we find him here in our text today reading God in the riot act in a lot of ways, and demanding a response. He says, why do bad people have it so good? Why do con artists make it so big? You planted them and they put down roots. They flourished and produced fruit. They talk as if they're old friends with you, but they couldn't care less about you. Meanwhile, you know me inside and out, and you don't let me get by with a thing. Make them pay for the way they live, pay with their lives, like sheep marked for slaughter. How long will you put up with this? The country depressed, the farms in ruin, all because of wickedness, these wicked lives. Even animals and birds are dying off because they'll have nothing to do with God and think God has nothing to do with him. Sound like a guy who's having a good day? In many ways, it reminds me of these arguments I used to have with my mom growing up. Um, I uh, was quite the little litigator growing up. I would build these cases in the midst of anything that I, I decided was unjust, which usually meant whatever I didn't like was unjust. Um, and I used this formula in the midst of it, and it went something like this. This isn't fair. My brother or some other kid at school is way worse than me. They're, they haven't been caught or their punishments aren't nearly as severe as this. And so if they're not going to have to kind of suffer these kind of punishments, why should I? And I thought it was so clever. Like, I was like, I got her good. Like, she's snared. She's not going to be able to get out of this. And my mom would just calmly employ a formula of her own. I don't care what other people have done right now. I care about what you did. You are accountable for your actions and the consequences of those actions. You have a choice to do better in the future and not end up in this spot again. Here's your punishment, and I'm not going to discuss it further with you. <laughs> if I didn't re relent, she would just suddenly announce that she had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and, and I found out years later that she actually hid a book in the bathroom. Like, she literally had a bathroom book for, like, when Colin's fighting with me. And she would just sit in the bathroom and read behind a locked door. And I would be at the door, like, railing, you know, and she just, I would, like, wear myself out. And then, literally, as a kid, I thought my mom had, like, a bladder issue or something that was, like, triggered by conflict. Like, <laughs> it's like, Colin and I are fighting. I got to go. Like, it was the most ridiculous thing, but it was the perfect response for a kid like me because I just was going to keep going. Honestly, she should get a medal for raising me, like... It's ridiculous. Anyway, God's response to Jeremiah in many ways isn't much different to him. When he says to him, so Jeremiah, if you're worn out by the foot race with men, what makes you think that you're going to be able to race against the horses? 
If you can't keep your wits during times of calm, what's going to happen when troubles break loose in the land of Jordan like a flood? And just for like a quick context thing, when they say like in the land of Jordan like a flood, the Jordan was an extremely dense like jungle type area, right? So imagine a flood going through there and you trying to find your way through it. And he's saying, if times are calm right now and you're having a hard time, I got to tell you, buddy, it's going to get worse. And how are you going to do that if you can't do this? What I also think is interesting in God's response is that he doesn't deny or dispute the facts that Jeremiah presents. He knows they're true. He knows the world has fallen. He knows the world is broken. He knows that his people are deeply caught in sin, and he knows that means that they're going to act in sinful ways. Like, this is not shocking to him. He's not, like, somehow caught unaware, like, gee, thanks, Jeremiah, and my job as Lord and Savior, I've really neglected this, this, this facet, and you've elucidated it perfectly for me, so thank you. No, that's not how this works here. He knows there's a problem. He knows it needs a solution. He's working on that solution. In fact, Jeremiah is a part of that solution. See, God's solution isn't to punish his people more as Jeremiah wants. Part, part of his solution was to send them a prophet in Jeremiah to announce the good news and, the, and truth to call them back to God. And sure, he's not always going to rescue them from the natural consequences of what their choices are bringing them, but he's not going to make things worse for them just because Jeremiah's having a bad day. And Jeremiah, out of his own frustration and anger is a lot like Ben Stern when he buys a gun. Like, he's pleading with God for a solution to punish those who are in the wrong. And it's not that they're not in the wrong. It's just the solution that he's seeking is not the one that God wants. So God's going to do something different here. He calls Jeremiah to be more than the man who wants to see those he despises punished. And instead to see these moments as training for the future that is to come. Not might come, might may become, that is to come. This is a character-building moment for Jeremiah, and it's a moment where he has a choice to be the man he was called to be or settle into a life and be like everyone else. And while the circumstances that I think Ben or Jeremiah are facing might seem really foreign to us, the moments in our lives where we have a choice to be more than our circumstances call us to be, I think is an experience that's common and one that we can all relate to. For me, it was in the aftermath of my divorce something I never wanted, something I fought against, and ultimately something that I had to accept. And I was angry. I felt wronged. I felt righteous, and I wanted justice. I felt like I deserved better. And the problem was that seeking those kinds of ends wasn't going to do me any good. In fact, all it would have done, what I can see now, is brought more pain and more heartache along the way. And I'm really thankful for my buddy Trevor during this season because he was a really faithful companion to me. He sat with me, he heard my anger, and then he consistently began to do something unexpected, the first time at least, and beyond that I was just annoyed for a while, but he would say to me, he asked me, who are you going to be in the midst of all of this? And initially I was like, don't ask me that question. I'd employ the same formula I would with my mom. You don't know what's happened to me, you don't know how hard this is, you can't say that to me, you haven't experienced something like this, like this litany of you can't talk to me this way, and he would just tell me none of that matters. He, the, he helped me face facts that my marriage was over. My marriage needed to be a place that I moved away from. And that in the midst of that journey, I needed to find the man that I was called to be. He helped me see in that moment that it didn't matter what had been done to me. It didn't matter what I felt about it. What mattered in that moment was the choice I had to be a man that I would respect in 10 years. To live in a way that didn't incur more shame, didn't incur more heartache, 
And what's more is that I had the choice and the ability to be the man that God was calling me to be. And that wasn't a guy who lived in the past and drank from a well of bitterness and anger because he couldn't move on. And that took me into a strange land and I felt like a really strange person. Being called to do something that I, everything in me didn't want to do, but knowing that was where I needed to go. Because if my divorce was going to be a place that I came from, then I needed to take steps away from it. And that meant I needed to be about something else and have a different end that I lived for. And I know, I know this may sound trite or like the thing that your pastor would say to you, but for me, this is a really true thing. I found hope and solace in the cross. That was the only place where I felt my pain had meaning, where someone wasn't saying it didn't matter, it didn't happen, or it wasn't real, or it's not so bad, or any other answer. That was the place that says your pain matters, and I'm here to do something with it. And in fact, ours is a God who comes to us in the midst of pain and suffers for us and brings us new life and redemption. And that was the place that I could find hope. It became a place where I let God begin to shape the character of the man that God had always intended for me to become. And I don't think that's a journey for just me. I think this is a journey that's for all of us, for all of God's people. And I will not for a minute say to you that I've done this perfectly or that there aren't moments I really wish I could redo. But what I'm finding on this journey is that I get to be a steward of the pain of my past and not let that define my future. And I also get to give that to God and let him make something better of it. Look, I'm sure everyone here has either had a moment or is currently having a moment where they're feeling tested. Where you feel tempted like Jeremiah to be defined by the circumstances that you're facing. And I'm here to say to you that those are moments that we find ourselves in the presence of God and that he calls us to be more. Those are moments where we're given the opportunity and the ability to build character and become just a little more of who we're created to be. In my work with kids, a lot of times what we talk about on staff and with our volunteers and things that we're trying to weave into the midst of everything we do is we're trying to help kids answer three questions. They're important developmental questions for them to step into adulthood. And those questions are, who am I, where do I belong, and do my choices matter? And those questions ultimately are about character and identity more than anything. And they're foundational questions. In fact, they're questions that all of us in this room have to answer no matter the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And the reason we engage kids with these questions so much and we weave it into what we do is because these are the questions they need to answer to fully step into being an adult. And they're questions that adults continuously re-engage no matter the season they find themselves in. And we want to sh shape their lives in a way that they answer those questions through a lens of faith. Because we believe that the, the answers to those questions are answers that will sustain them in the midst of whatever will come their way. Because as God points out to Jeremiah, the foot races that we run now are easy in comparison to the horse races that will come. And the identity and character that we choose to forge out of our present circumstances will only prepare us for the things to come. And I think that's a reality, I'll speak for me, and I don't think I'm alone in this, but I think this is a reality that scares us. Because it shakes up our fantasies of the life, of how we think life should be, or the lives we want. Many of us, including me, have thoughts of an easy life, or maybe an easy life that you're owed on the other side of hard times. But the same truth that God is making clear to Jeremiah is a truth that we need to come to terms with as well. He made a covenant to never leave or forsake us, not to make life easy for us. 
That means we get to, we're promised a life lived in his presence, but not a life free of challenge or pain. And I, trust me, I have my own misgivings about this truth. Like, there are days where I'm like, hey, God, let's just rethink this part of it. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> really? Right? But what I've come to find on that journey is that the life lived in his presence, no matter what I face, is better than the life I fantasize about. Because a life lived in his presence and in and, and the midst of the call that he has is a life of meaning and purpose. And one where I, you, we, we all get to be a part of how God is redeeming and restoring and reviving the whole of creation. And so I want to end by a way of just a challenge to you. Where are the moments in your life that you are currently experiencing hardship? How can those moments become more than what the circumstances you are facing expect of you? Who is God calling you to be instead of who you want to be? How can you see those hardships as opportunities to grow and be ready for the horse races that are ahead of you in life? The push here is the simple push in reality that God's giving to Jeremiah. It's a reality for us too. If you're worn out on this foot race with, the, with those around you, what makes you think you're going to be able to run with the horses in the future? And if you can't keep your wits about you in times like these, what's going to happen when something bigger comes your way? My hope for all of us is to see the hardships that we face as opportunities to become the you that God created you to be. And in the midst of that, find a different journey than the one that you'd planned for yourself. I'm not going to tell you it's going to be easy. I'm not going to tell you it's always going to be fun. But it will be the one where you find the you that you were meant to be. And take heart. Because you will never be on that journey alone. Holy God, we are thankful for you and thankful that you are the God that never leaves us and never forsakes us. And that no matter the place we find ourselves in, it's a place where we meet you. So help us to hear your voice above all else and help us to be guided into the better self that you created us to be. Help us to trust you and love you with all that we are and all that we are called to in the future. It's in your name we pray. Amen.